invite you to open up your Bibles to Leviticus chapter 10. Leviticus chapter 10. I know as soon as you heard the book Leviticus, you got worried and glossy-eyed. Don't worry, it's not an overview of the book. That comes next week. Today we're just going to be looking at one story, and it really is the, the, the only narrative part of the story throughout the book of Leviticus. Uh, and that is obviously the story of Nadab and Abihu. And this is, um, I'd say, a story that at least we should know or at least be somewhat familiar with by now because it's a story that has been referenced a couple of times that I have referenced specifically um, as we've been going throughout our series on authority. We're not done with that, but uh, we'll, we're going to get back to that at some point. Um, but today I wanted to focus on um, this narrative portion of uh, Leviticus and then tonight what I want to do is uh, whoops I must have put this in the wrong order give me just one second here here we go I'll put it back in the right order (laughs) before we have the invitation song anyway what was I saying (laughs) Uh, Leviticus chapter 10, uh, as I said, I, I want to just continue on in our series on going through at least one lesson in each book of the Bible. And we've gone through Genesis, we've gone through Exodus. Now, we haven't touched every single thing we could, but we're just hitting some, what I would hope are major points, major themes throughout the book, throughout those books. Um, and, and then tonight, I wanted to just go through a lesson that has been kind of I've been mulling over in my mind for, for the last few weeks, and that's uh, specifically on encouragement. And actually, that's what the two articles on the bulletin this morning uh, are more focused towards is tonight's lesson. So you get a little bit of a preview if you pick up the bulletin for tonight's lesson. But um, coming back to Leviticus, <clears throat> this is an interesting story just because, first of all, you get, get essentially the main points of the story within just the first two verses. Uh, what I want to do is go ahead and read um, the first 20 verses there just to get all of the context before we get into the uh, lesson. There's really two main points that I want to make. Um, and just forewarning, I feel like I kind of geeked out this week as I was studying the past two weeks studying for this lesson because I want to focus on two words specifically and how they are used throughout the Old Testament um, just to help us understand what those words mean, what they look like, and then make application once we know what they mean. Um, And so those two words are going to be what you find in the first 20 verses here of Leviticus chapter 10. So we'll go ahead and read this. Now, before we actually do read this, just understand the context of Leviticus so far. In chapters 8 and chapter 9, what you have is the priesthood being consecrated for service. It's a beautiful moment. Not only that, but you have the first offerings given and accepted with this new consecrated priesthood. And it is accepted in a pretty wonderful way. The, 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 uh, the uh, flames, God brings flames to consume the offering, and it's clear that he is accepting it. It's clear that this relationship, this, this covenant relationship, is uh, progressing the way it's supposed to. Now, on the heels of that, We come to Leviticus chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. It says, Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took their respective fire pans, and after putting fire in them, placed incense on it, and offered strange fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. In verse 2, And fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. 
Then Moses said to Aaron, It is what the Lord spoke, saying, By those who come near me, I will be treated as holy, and before all the people I will be honored. So Aaron therefore kept silent. Moses called also to Mishael and Elzaphan, the sons of Aaron's uncle, Aziel, and said to them, Come forward, carry your relatives away from the, from the front of the sanctuary to the outside of the camp. So they came forward and carried them still in their tunics to the outside of the camp, as Moses had said. Then Moses said to Aaron and to his sons Eleazar and Ithamar, his two remaining sons, Do not uncover your heads nor tear your clothes so that you will not die and that he will not become wrathful against all the congregation. But your kinsmen, the whole house of Israel, shall bewail the burning which the Lord has brought about. You shall not even go out from the doorway of the tent of meeting, or you will die. For the Lord's anointing oil is upon you. So they did according to the word of Moses. The Lord then spoke to Aaron, saying, Do not drink wine or strong drink, neither you nor your sons with you, when you come into the tent of meeting, so that you will not die. It is a perpetual statute throughout your generations, and so as to make a distinction between the holy and the profane, and between the unclean and the clean, and so as to teach the sons of Israel all the statutes which the Lord has spoken to them through Moses. Then Moses spoke to Aaron and to his surviving sons, Eleazar and Ithamar, take the grain offering that is left over from the Lord's offerings by fire and eat it unleavened beside the altar, for it is most holy. You shall eat it moreover in a holy place, because it is your due and your sons' due out of the Lord's offerings by fire, for thus I have been commanded. The breast of the wave offering, however, and the thigh of the offering, you may eat in a clean place, you and your sons and your daughters with you, for they have been given as your due and your sons due out of the sacrifices of the peace offerings of the sons of Israel. The thigh offered by lifting up and the breast offered by waving, they shall bring along with the offerings by fire of the portions of fat to present as a wave offering before the Lord. So it shall be a thing perpetually due you and your sons with you, just as the Lord has commanded. But Moses searched carefully for the goat of the sin offering, and behold, it had been burned up. So he was angry with Aaron's surviving sons, Eleazar and Ithamar, saying, Why did you not eat the sin offering at the holy place? For it is most holy, and he gave it to you to bear away the guilt of the congregation, to make atonement for them before the Lord. Behold, since its blood had not been brought inside into the sanctuary, you sh should certainly have eaten it in the sanctuary, just as I commanded. But Aaron spoke to Moses, Behold, this very day they presented their sin offering and their burnt offering before the Lord. When things like these happened to me, if, I, if I'd eaten a sin offering today, would it have been good in the sight of the Lord? And when Moses heard that, <clears throat> it seemed good in his sight. Now, again, I know that was um, 20 verses, but it is interesting, first of all, to note how many times the, the notion of God's commandments come up. Um, and, and really, that brings us into the first point of the, the fact that God has spoken. God has commanded, and he has given them regulations, rules to follow. And, and I know when we use terms like regulations, that really brings, that doesn't really help us um, get in the proper kind of grateful attitude that we're supposed to worship with. But he has given them a law to follow. It's not like he's been unclear. It's not like he's been vague, as we've talked about in the past several weeks. So what I want to do with, with that in mind, <clears throat> thinking about how God has made these things clear, and he's given them so much to actually, uh, to actually please him with acceptable offerings and come before him in an acceptable manner. I want to look at specifically this word when it talks about how they offered strange fire. Instead of offering the, the, uh, the worship that would please God, they offered worship that displeased him. And to such a degree that you see this immediate reaction. And we'll talk about that more in just a moment, why it was so immediate. But specifically that word in, uh, for, in the New American Standard, it's translated strange fire. In uh, the ESV and in the NIV, both of those translations, it 
just translates it as unauthorized. And I really think that is the point. I don't think you have to do much studying to understand that this is what it's talking about. That it was fire, it was worship, it was an offering that God had not prescribed. And because of that, that is why judgment came. Now, um, I, I don't think, you, again, you have to do very much study to figure that out. Even within the same verse, verse 1, right after it says they offered the strange fire, it says, which he had not commanded them. So it, it's really not even vague when you look at the story itself. So I just want to make that very clear and, and look at a few passages where the same word, the same Hebrew word, I believe, is used throughout the Old Testament just to make that case that... Nobody can come to this and say, well, that's a bad translation. No, it's very clear that this is specifically what has not been prescribed. That is why it's sinful. So beginning in uh, Numbers chapter 1, Numbers chapter 1, beginning in verse 50, it says, But you shall appoint the Levites over the tabernacle of the testimony and over all its furnishings and over all that belongs to it. They shall carry the tabernacle and all its furnishings, and they shall take care of it. They shall also uh, camp around the tabernacle. So when the tabernacle is set is to set out, the Levites shall take it down, and when the tabernacle encamps, the Levites shall set it up, but the layman who comes near shall be put to death. That same word for strange fire in, in Leviticus chapter 10 and verse 1 is translated here as a layman in Numbers chapter 1 and verse 51. Now essentially what you mean, and we're going to see that a couple of times in the next couple of passages, but essentially what that means is it is someone who is not uh, who has not been specified for the role that they are trying to, uh, the role that God is, is speaking about, instructing right now. And so he's talking about a specific role, and you have anyone else who is not a Levite, not of the tribe of Levi, they are not allowed to try and take up this role. And you see this especially, I'd say especially after many encounters where uh, people do try to take too much on that they are not allowed, that they, that, that they have not been prescribed to, and then uh, judgment follows. You see that especially in Numbers chapter 16. But in Exodus chapter 29, in verse 31, first of all, you have non-Levites, those who are not a part of that tribe, they weren't allowed to participate in specific work, specifically the work of the tabernacle. In Exodus chapter 29, in verse 33, he's talking about Levites, uh, but now he goes a little bit further. He says, You shall take the ram of ordination and boil its flesh in a holy place. Aaron and his sons shall eat the flesh of the ram and the blood uh, of the ram and the bread that is in the basket. I don't know why the letter L keeps coming into every word I'm saying. At the doorway of the tent of meeting. Verse 33. Thus they shall eat those things by which atonement was made at their ordination and consecration. But a layman shall not eat them because they are not holy. Because they are holy. Now, it's interesting that he uses the same word, but now he is talking about even some who are Levites. So, so is, there a, is there just a disconnect here? Is there a contradiction here? No. In the previous passage, he was talking about specific people who had a specific job, and no one else who are not a part of that particular group could do that job. And now he's doing the same thing here. While he is uh, going a step further, talking about priests, what that means is, even if you're a Levite, if you are not a son of Aaron, well, this is not for you. And, then you, and you see that over and over again uh, in Leviticus chapter 22 and verse 10. It says, no lame man, you could even say stranger, however, is to eat the holy gift. A sojourner with the priest or a hired man shall not eat of the holy gift. But if a priest buys a slave as his property with his money, that one may eat of it, and those who are born in his house may eat of his food. If a priest's daughter is married to a layman, she shall not eat of the offering of the gifts. 
But if a priest's daughter becomes a widow or divorced and has no child and returns to her father's house as in her youth, she shall eat of her father's food, but no layman shall eat of it. Now, you read uh, passages like this, and one thing you find is that even from the very beginning, even in the Law of Moses, there was a lot of uh, passages to suggest that ex- exclusivity was a, uh, has always been a part of God's kingdom. You know, not just anybody can, can, uh, not just anybody can come in and do whatever they want. No. There are some exclusive roles for certain individuals. And so even uh, in Leviticus chapter 22, kind of uh, hearkening back to what we just read in Exodus 29, people that were not priests, even though they may be Levites, if they weren't sons of Aaron, they could not partake of the holy gifts that God had set aside for them. That was a part of their provision. That was a part of how they were supported to a degree. And there's something to a lesson just in that. But, but moving on past that, again, specifically looking at the priests, they had specifically prescribed works that only they could lawfully perform, that only they could scripturally perform. In Numbers chapter 16, in verse 39, now remember, this is the story of Korah's rebellion and how Korah and Dathan and Abiram, they all come in and they, they want to, and interestingly enough, they were Levites. They had more privileges. They had more uh, intimate roles in the kingdom of Israel, in the nation of Israel, in the work of, of all of these things. They had more privileges than the rest of the tribes of Israel. But that wasn't enough for these men. And what they wanted to do was take on roles of priests. They wanted to take on certain works that were not for them. And God makes very clear that these men are not for him. And he opens up the earth and he swallows them. In verse 39 of Numbers chapter 16, it says, So Eleazar the priest took the bronze censers, which the men who were burned had offered, and they hammered them out as a plating for the altar, as a reminder to the sons of Israel that no layman who is not of the descendants of Aaron should come near to burn incense before the Lord, so that he will not become like Korah and his company, just as the Lord had spoken to him through Moses. And so even here, what you find is, uh, and what's interesting is uh, there were, uh, I, think, I think it was 250 men, I may be wrong on the number, but there was 250 men who were trying to carry censers. Um, incidentally, you even see that in Leviticus chapter 10, Nadab and Abihu, they're carrying their respective censers and they're putting incense in it. The problem is they did not do what was prescribed. They did not, get the, they did not offer the right fire or the right worship. Now, here are men who are not priests, and God makes very clear that uh, he is already uh, prescribed and quite clearly who could actually do these things. Uh, in chapter 18 and verse 7, very quickly, beginning in verse 6, it says, Behold, I myself have taken your fellow Levites from among the sons of Israel. They are a gift to you, dedicated to the Lord to perform the service for the tent of meeting. But you and your sons with you shall attend to your priesthood for everything concerning the altar and inside the veil. You are to perform service. I am giving you the priesthood as a bestowed service, but the outsider who comes near shall be put to death. And why is that? Because this, this is holy ground, and this is holy work. And you don't get to just approach me in any way you see fit. And incidentally, that's another lesson we learned from Nadab and Abihu themselves. Even as you think about what the priests could do, and, and how they could do things that the rest of the Levites could not, there was even more exclusivity as you go higher up, only Aaron, only the high priest could go in uh, the Day of Atonement. Only he could go into the most holy place. No one else was allowed to do that. One person. And why is that? Because you step into that realm, that is the most holy part of, of uh, the, whole, the whole structure. And why is that? Because that's where the mercy seat lies. That's where the presence of the Lord is. And that is... Uh, uh, 
was the midst. That is how God was dwelling in the midst of Israel. And so you approach that in a holy manner, and not just everyone gets to do that. So just with a few passages, I wanted to show, I, I think over and over again, this word lends itself to the notion that it is that which is not prescribed. It is that ultimately which is unauthorized. Now, going beyond that, it also indicates something that has not come from God, as we've already talked about, not being prescribed. In Deuteronomy chapter 32, in verse 15, it says, But Jeshurun grew fat and kicked. You are grown fat, thick and sleek. Then he forsook God who made him and scorned the rock of his salvation. Remember, this is a part of the Song of Moses. And it was to be remembered by the people of Israel, especially as they go throughout their history. I think it's interesting. When, when Israel goes into Babylon, they get to look back at this song and they could sing this song and they could think all the way back then, God was telling us what would happen if we disobeyed him. So you're talking about that in verse 16. They made him jealous with strange gods, with abominations. They provoked him to anger. So not only is it something that obviously has not been prescribed by God, but it is something that just specifically is derived from anything but God. I think it's rooted in idolatry. I think it always, uh, almost always uh, is rooted in idolatry. Over in Psalm 81... In verse 8, the psalmist says, Hear, O my people, and I will admonish you. O Israel, if you would listen to me, let there be no strange God among you, nor shall you worship any foreign God. I, the Lord, am your, am your God, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. Open your mouth wide, and I will fill it. So here is God saying, if you would just, if you would just come back to me, you could receive some of these blessings. If you just come back to me, then you wouldn't have to go through the same plagues that Egypt did. Incidentally, the plagues that only my enemies go through. If you would come back to me and be my people, be a holy nation, well then I would, uh, as he says at the end, I would bring these blessings back. But specifically in verse 9, he says, let there be no strange God among you. And again, what does that indicate? But something uh, that they are worshiping that is clearly not God. And so it indicates idolatry. Not only that, but when used um, specifically tied to God's people, I think it indicates ultimately a turning away from him. In Isaiah chapter 1 and verse 4, Isaiah chapter 1 and verse 4, it says, Alas, sinful nation, people weighed down with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, sons who act corruptly. Now, if you think that this is laying it on thick in just one verse, read the entire first chapter of Isaiah. It is, it's, it's just... The, the, the language of judgment, the language of, of corruption of the sons of Israel, it just pervades, not just chapter 1, but all throughout Isaiah and Jeremiah both. What's be, what makes it more beautiful is that while he's talking about that, you get to verse 18 and 19, and, and that's where God says, come, just let us reason together. Turn back. And why do they have to turn back? Because they have abandoned the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They have turned away from Him. It's the same word for strange fire in Leviticus chapter 10 and verse 1. Now, why do I go through that? Just to make the point that when it's used about God's people, God's nation, God's children, what it means is they don't, they don't look like Him anymore. And they are not in a relationship with Him anymore by any means. Because they have gone after other idols. They've gone after dead idols. They've gone after false gods. And they have completely forsook and betrayed me and left me. Abandoned me, he says. You look over in Ezekiel chapter 14 and verse 5. I kind of added this in uh, uh, kind of later in the outline. So that's why you don't see it on the chart. But in Ezekiel chapter 14 and verse 4, it says, Therefore speak to them and tell them, Thus says the Lord God, Any man of the house of Israel who sets up his idols in his heart, 
puts right before his face the stumbling block of his iniquity and then comes to the prophet, I, the Lord, will be brought to give him an answer in the matter in view of the multitude of his idols. In order to lay hold of the hearts of the house of Israel who are estranged from me through all their idols. So once again, bringing back this notion of idolatry. And uh, so, so they become strangers. They become estranged to God or from God specifically because... Well, they are worshiping something else. They're putting something in front of their relationship with him. You move on to Hosea chapter 5 in verse 7. They are strangers in what way in, in this verse. He says, they have dealt treacherously against the Lord, for they have borne illegitimate children. If you recall, in the first few chapters of Hosea, God uses Hosea as an example, as an illustration, to show what the relationship between Israel and God currently looks like. It looks like... Hosea, a faithful husband, a, a husband that has been uh, exemplary and a husband that has been loving. And you have his wife, Gomer, and she goes and she becomes an adulteress. She becomes a harlot and she even spawns children that probably are not, har- probably are not Hosea's. And I think even uh, Brother Ray Warfel kind of talked about this in one of his lessons. And he uses that whole illustration to say, you think that's bad? All of you have done that to me. The entire nation of Israel, you have produced generations that simply do not look like my children. And they're especially, uh, they don't carry my characteristics. They don't hold me fast. They don't even know my word. That's what he says in Hosea chapter 8 and verse 12. Though I wrote from 10,000 precepts of my law, they are regarded as a strange thing. So in both cases, you have people who are physical Israel. But they are illegitimate children, strange children, meaning they're not mine. And then you go on to, I think, why that is. But it's because they have made God a stranger to them. Now, I went through all of this because I wanted to ask the question, ultimately, do people offer strange worship today? Can we offer strange worship today? Unauthorized worship, idolatrous worship, rebellious worship even. I think we absolutely can you have someone who, who may, ask the, may ask the question, you know, does it really matter how we worship as long as we're worshiping the same God? Oh, it matters. It definitely matters. Because there's a lot of people that say they believe, that I believe in Jehovah. We all believe in the same God. But clearly, clearly, we approach how, how we listen to God in different ways. You know, you could look back at Leviticus chapter 10 at Nadab and Abihu. What might they have been thinking? Well, listen. The main thing here is that the incense must be burned. That's the commandment. Hey, we did that. I mean, where we got the fire to burn the incense, well, I mean, that just seemed kind of unimportant. The main part is we needed to do the commandment. Well, the problem is they uh, had enough uh, of God's revelation and in a more direct way than even we have. They had a more direct revelation from God. They had been uh, given much prescribed information, much instruction on how to do this. And they decided to just do it their own way. And what I think you find is every particular seemed to matter to God then. And I think every particular seems to matter to God now. I don't think that's a principle that's changed. If so, you gotta, you, you've got to prove that. But I, I have not found any evidence to suggest that, at least very strongly. Every particular seems to matter to God. If he has revealed it, as we've looked at in Deuteronomy chapter 29 and verse 29, we have a responsibility to adhere to it. 
and adhere to only that and not to turn to the right or to the left. And so we need to make sure that we don't forget that. Well, you also have someone who may, especially just talking about how we worship today, especially when someone brings in the idea of, of instrumental music in, in worship services. The Bible, the, listen, the Bible doesn't forbid outright the use of these instruments. It doesn't say you shall not. So surely there can't be anything wrong with adding instruments to make our singing sound better. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> that kind of reasoning, that kind of argumentation, it sounds, sounds just like what Nadab and Abihu did. They decided that they knew better or they decided that, that everything that God said, well, they could just put some of it away. And that's what people do when they approach worship, even today. And I'll just say, just kind of, again, emphasizing what we've talked about in the previous weeks. God did not destroy Nadab, Nadab and Abihu for what he did not say. He destroyed them. And he justly brought wrath, his wrath upon them for what he had already clearly stated. <laughs> it's, n it's not like they couldn't have known. And I know that I'm probably beating a dead horse with that. Uh, and ultimately, you're thinking, you know, we've been going through a series on authority. This sounds like just another lesson on authority. Honestly, it all boils down to authority. And I hope that we never get away from that. And so can we offer strange worship today? Absolutely, absolutely we can. And that is when we decide that we are going to base our decisions and how we approach anything based upon our own authority or upon someone else's other than God's. So we need to learn from Nadab and Abihu in that uh, point just alone. But the second one I want to look at is this word profane. Now, ultimately, as we're going to look at a few passages where this word is used, but ultimately, I think the issue here, it can be summed up in they didn't come before God in a worthy manner. Back in Leviticus chapter 10, verse 3, Moses said to Aaron, it is what the Lord spoke saying after all this has occurred. By those who come near me, I will be treated as holy. And before all the people, I will be honored. And so what is God saying? Well, he's indicating at the very least that they did not treat him as holy. Nadab and Abihu, they came before him in an irreverent manner, in an unworthy manner, and they treated him as unholy. Now, we're going to look at what, how, how we can treat him unholy at the same time. But in verse 10, he says, And so as to make a distinction between the holy and the profane, and between the unclean and the clean, and so as to teach the sons of Israel all the statutes which the Lord has spoken to them through Moses. Right after he tells what, kind of an insertion here, uh, it seems that maybe possibly alcohol was, was a part of what, what happened here. Either way, the points that we've made still stand. Um, but there may have been alcohol involved here, and so he gives that, that, uh, uh, that instruction, that commandment, don't you do this before you come before me, so that you can make a distinction. You need, your mind can't be distracted, you can't be divided, you need to have total devotion, total attention, total focus on me when you come before me. And certainly that has not changed, even in the 21st century, even though we live in 2022. So it, I think it's, ultimately summed up in they came before God in an irreverent and unworthy manner. Now, looking at the word profane specifically, first of all, uh, what this looks like is, I would say, treating him as common. Now, when you think about the word holy, and this is probably something that we're going to really focus on in the, our next lesson on Leviticus, when you look at the word holy, it means basically something that is set apart. Now, one thing that I love that Brother Tom Holly uh, mentions whenever he talks about this word is, you, you know, there are a lot of things I have that are set apart. My keys are set apart to the, to the point where often I can't find them. 
And then I take about 30 to 45 minutes just looking for them. And then finally, oh, alas, there they are. We're not talking about that kind of set apart. When we're talking about God, he's set apart for a special, valuable, honorable reason. That's what we mean when we're talking about holy. And so when you think about that which is profane, it is treating God as not holy. It is treating or whatever we're talking about as simply common. You even see the same word used in 1 Samuel chapter 21, beginning in verse 4, as David is, is um, fleeing from, uh, from, not Solomon, that's his son, from, uh, from Saul. As David is fleeing from uh, Saul at the time, there's this dispute between them. It says, the priest answered David as, as he is trying to um, get some of the bread from them to some provision as they're going on their journey. It says, the priest answered David and said, there is no ordinary bread on hand, but there is consecrated bread. If only the young men have kept themselves from women. David answered the priest and said to him, surely women have been kept from us as previously when I sent out and the vessels of the young men were holy, though it was an ordinary journey. How much more than today will their vessels be holy? And so twice in these two verses, you see that word used translated as ordinary. And incidentally, in each case, it is contrasted with uh, that which has been consecrated bread or that which is holy. Um, And so even here, I think you see it especially emphasize this notion. Now, we're not talking about God necessarily, but we are talking about things that were set apart because of God, because of his instruction like the consecrated bread, which we've already read about earlier in the lesson. And so uh, all of that just to say there was a difference uh, just in bread, in the holy bread and the, consec- and, and the, consec- uh, the holy bread and the common bread, the ordinary bread. And so that carries with it this idea of, ma- of treating something as if it is just simply common. Um, he talks about his name in this way in Leviticus chapter 19. In verse 12, he says simply, you shall not swear falsely by my name so as to profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. Now, there's a few things that we can take from this. But one thing we can take from this is his name is not common. In fact, his name was so holy that when you get when you uh, I I believe uh, if I'm not mistaken, when you get to the writing of the Septuagint, you would have the writers, the scribes, as they are rewriting that name that's capitalized in all uh, uh, Lord it stands for Jehovah, the I am, Yahweh. When the scribes would go and uh, write that word down, before they even wrote it down, they would go and they would wash themselves. And then they would come back. And then they would write down the word. And then they would go and wash themselves again. And then they'd come back to continue writing uh, the rest of, of, of the, the text that they had. Now, I, I, I don't know if... I don't know if all that is absolutely necessary, but I will say there is something admirable about that kind of devotion, about that kind of reverence when it comes to God and his name. And so uh, just very simply, you see in in a few places, not just Leviticus chapter 19, verse 12, even the the same uh, chapter, I believe, it talks about this idea of profaning his name, which we'll look at in just a moment. But the idea is don't put his name to shame. And we can do that in many different ways, just through our actions. And we'll look at that in just a moment. But another thing that I think this indicates is just simply by, uh, it's the idea of degrading. Um, In Leviticus chapter 19 and verse 29, not talking about God here, but God still speaking his law. It says, do not profane your daughter by making her a harlot, so that the land will not fall to harlotry and the land become full of lewdness. 
Now, I think the point is pretty clear here. You would not treat your daughter in such a way. No one, I don't, there's no one in this room that would even think uh, in, in such a way to treat their, their flesh and blood as something so trivial and, and, and common. No, that's my blood. That is special. And of course, I'm not just going to, I'm not going to profane her. I'm not going to let her become a heart. I'm not going to let her uh, devalue herself. And I think that's ultimately what this word is, is, is really getting across, um, at least in this sense. It is revealing the lack of worth or value in one's eyes. And when we profane God, one thing that we are doing is we are showing the lack of value that he has in our eyes, that he has in our lives. And again, I hope to show that in just a moment. But you go on past that in Leviticus chapter 20. Leviticus chapter 20. In beginning in verse 2, it says, Any man from the sons of Israel or from the alien sojourning in Israel who gives any of his offspring to Molech shall surely be put to death. The people of the land shall stone him with stones. I will also set my face against that man and will cut him off from among the people because he has given some of his offspring to Molech so as to defile my sanctuary and to profane my holy name. And so there we have that idea again of profaning God's name. How do we profane God's name? By simply treating him like he's just any other False God, little g. Treating him just like the dead idols of, made of wood and stone that don't answer back, that have literally nothing to contribute to all of creation. And I think that there are several ways that we can do that. In one instance, by attributing characteristics upon God that really follow suit after the, the idolatry of the world. Um, and and we, we've even kind of talked about that a little bit as we've been looking at some of these topics in, in the, the devoted to prayer material in the Bible class. The, there are characteristics that are specific to God that are not shared with any other being, period. And so we profane his name in these kinds of ways. And, and, and it, it is amazing that Israel could even go this far. First of all, this was just being spoken in, in kind of a proactive manner. He said, don't do this because this is the way the rest of the nations act. This is the way the rest of the nations worship, but you are not to do so. And then they go beyond, and they even get to the point where they're doing this. You have a few instances like Jeremiah chapter 19 and Jeremiah chapter 32. Twice God says, you are giving your sons and daughters in these kinds of offerings. This did not even enter my mind. This is never something that I wanted. I did tell you, though, this is how the Canaanites acted, and this is how the idolatrous acted. So very simply, it's acting like the rest of the world and not acting like that holy people that we are supposed to act like. So even more, how, what are a few more ways that this is done today? Simply just by mixing the holy with the profane and vice versa. So you have someone who says, well, you know, they kind of reason within themselves. There's a football game or a basketball game we want to attend instead of maybe an assembly, whatever. Well, let's figure this out. I think I can go to the game instead of the assembly, as long as I give a bigger contribution. So what do you have? What, is this, what has this fellow just done? Well, he has decided, well, I, I, can, I can almost buy an indulgence, right? I can, as long as I pay the fee, then I get to actually break God's law. I think it's kind of the way we look at, um, I think it's kind of the way we look at the speed limit sometimes. It's like, okay, this road is 35. I think I'm willing to pay the fee. <laughs> I think I'm willing to pay the extra cost to go a little bit faster. And uh, I think that's often how 
we look at God's word sometimes. I think that's how a lot of the time throughout Israel's history, especially when you look at the Pharisees, that's how they looked at God's law. That's really kind of what legalism looks like. Uh, I, you know, as long as I give a little bit more, as long as I do this extra thing, I'll just give this offering in advance, and then I can go ahead and break God's law. Well, obviously, that, just, that doesn't work. And so we can profane his name by doing something like that. Uh, not only that, but when you think about how to use the church's, the, the Lord's funds, the contribution for the saints, you have someone who may look at that and say, well, let's, let's just take the easy route. We need more money. Let's just take the easy route and use the church's funds to, to buy a concert stage. And we'll get a, a, a fog, fog machine and we'll do all these things and we'll put it in the auditorium. And ultimately that's going to bring more money and that's going to bring more people in. It's going to get a lot of attention and it's going to be very popular. So let's go ahead and do that. Well, there's a lot of things wrong with that. But one is how we look at, at the the. The, the Lord's money, the Lord's funds, the church's funds, and how they are to be used. Not to mention the fact that it has been prescribed already, instructed how we are to use that money. But very simply, I, maybe more fundamentally, I think it is we can treat God in this way, profane his name simply by entering worship like a spectator instead of a, a sincere, active participant who's trying to appease the king. This is actually something that is a part of uh, one of the articles in, in, in the bulletin uh, today. The idea of not just being a spectator, but a participant. You profane his name when we come in and think, well, I'm just going to sit back. I'm going to sit back and listen. Where's the authority to not sing with the rest of the brethren in the assembly and not worship with them in song? Where's the authority to not pray with the one who is leading the prayer. Oh, you're right. There is none. God has prescribed. He's given us instructions to follow. And so how are we following them? Are we following them or are we profaning his name? Well, all of this ultimately just to say when we profane his name, when we offer strange worship, it always deserves judgment. It's clear from the very beginning in, uh, from the very beginning of, of the Bible, but also in Leviticus chapter 10 with Nadab and Abihu, they were put to a death immediately. And I think that was because of the severity of their sin. They, I don't think that Nadab and Abihu, this is something that me and Brother Ray were actually talking about in the previous week. Nadab and Abihu, they weren't necessarily just the worst people ever. They weren't the worst sinners ever. What they were, though, were people that committed an egregious, egregious sin. And so it deserved swift and severe punishment just punishment now in conclusion uh, as we prepare for the, the invitation and I'll go ahead and get that ready uh, I, I think the message of the gospel oh that's not right either there we go the message of the gospel is the enlightenment that we have sinned against God that we have broken his commandments that we stand before him as strangers as enemies by breaking his law, and therefore we all deserve death, we all deserve hell. Now that is not a very pretty picture. What makes it more beautiful, what makes it hopeful, is the fact that God displays his merciful character every day simply by not striking us down when we do sin against him. He has the right, and it would be just, but he doesn't, doesn't want to. And you want to know the reason why he's so merciful. 
because he wants us to repent. He wants us to come back to him and be in a right relationship with him. In 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9, Peter says, The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Why is God so merciful? Because he wants us to be in a relationship with him. Do you wish to be in a relationship with him? That's the real question. Are you ready to pledge allegiance to the king? Are you ready to do everything that he says? Do you want to become a part of that kingdom? If you are subject to the invitation of Christ, please let your need be made known. Come and let your need be made known as we stand and as we sing.